He died a death he didn't deserve so you and I could have a life that we don't deserve. Amen. You know, I'm trying to get used to being back in two services. We spent seven or, seven or eight weeks together in one. And because that's what I've done most of my career, you would think that'd be easy to jump right back into that. But I just found myself uh, a moment ago a little confused because I stood in the same place in the first service, but my family was there with me in the first service. And when I stepped off the platform in the first service after the announcements and we got down there, the worship started, the music started, this sweet little hand, my little girl, Kalia, she's eight years old. She grabbed my hand and she holds hands with her dad a lot when we worship like that. And so that was really cool. And then I got a little confused in the second service because I stand there worshiping and I almost reached over and held Jeremiah's hand because <laughs> I forgot this is a different service. Would you have forgiven me, Jeremiah, if I had, you're so nice. You could probably forgive me for something like that, but I've done far worse that's hard to forgive. Do you ever find it hard to forgive other people? I do. Can I just go and tell you, the preacher does. I give you permission to go, yeah, me too. And then there's this whole forgive and forget thing. Anybody licked that one yet? Anybody got that one mastered? You're a good forgiver and forgetter? Yeah, me neither. Don't you love it when somebody wrongs you, harms you, hurts you, betrays you, and then they have the audacity to say to you, well, let's forgive and forget. Really? Not so easy to do. And here's why. You know, relationships are hard. Anybody know that? Can I get an amen today? The reason relationships are hard is because of sin. We live in a broken and a fallen and in a messed up world. And oftentimes, I think as people, especially God's people, we're confused about what are we supposed to do with this hurt, with this pain, with this betrayal? What are we supposed to do with a relationship that is now strained, hurt, harmed? broken. Do we always forgive? Is that what we're supposed to do? And, and, and what does that really mean anyway? And, and forgive and forget? Is that even really possible? Do I just, is that what's expected of me that I'm just supposed to pretend like none of that ever happened? I, I, I'm just supposed to be happy that we just go back to where we were and what we were doing and just pretend nothing ever even was wrong? Do we just completely reset and go right back to trusting somebody who has broken our trust, who has violated our trust in some way? And let's up the ante on these questions. What if, what if somebody was, was really hurt? What if somebody was harmed? What if, what if, by forgiving and forgetting and just acting like nothing ever happened, what if that puts somebody in harm's way? What if that puts somebody in a risky situation? Is, is that what we're supposed to do with forgiveness? It's forgive and it's forget, even if it means that we position somebody, ourselves or another, in a place that is unsafe? I think today God's got some answers for those hard questions out of his word. If anybody knew just how difficult earthly relationships could be. It's this guy by the name of Joseph in the Old Testament. 
We've been studying the life of Joseph for seven or eight weeks, I guess now. And if anybody knew how harmful and hurtful and painful earthly relationships could be, it's Joseph, right? His brothers, they hated him. They threw him in a pit. They sold him as a slave. They wrote him off for dead. They led their father to believe that he had been mauled by a wild animal. And yet, 20 years later, because God is sovereign over all things, Joseph, 20 years later, is essentially the vice president of Egypt. The world is experiencing a terrible famine. And lo and behold, guess who comes from Canaan to Egypt to get food? It's Joseph's brothers. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. Just like some of you told me last week, you didn't recognize me. When I first grew out that old gray beard, people who had not seen me in a long time, I had to tell them who I was sometimes, right? So it is with Joseph. He's grown up now in Egypt. He looks different. They don't know who he is, but he knows who they are. And if one thing is clear, I think, so far in the story of Joseph, it's this. I think Joseph has forgiven his brothers for all that mess that they did. And here's why I think he's forgiven them. Because as they've stood before him, if he had not forgiven them, at the very least, he would have sent them away without food. At the very worst, he would have had them executed right there on the spot in that moment. Now, let's think for a minute about what is forgiveness. And let's just kind of imagine, we're going to put it on a spectrum here across the stage. We're going to put forgiveness over here, okay? And let's talk about forgiveness. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, the Bible says, Then Peter came to him, that's Jesus, and he asked him, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? And that's a lot. Jesus said, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Listen, forgiveness is a vital part of what it means to be a Christian. Forgiveness is a vital part about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, Jesus is saying here, we're not only to forgive occasionally or stingily, but we are to give lavishly with essentially no limitation to how many times we should be forgiving to other people. See, following Jesus means that forgiving other people is not an option. It's not an option whether or not the people of God will forgive In fact, Jesus teaches us that the way we forgive other people is the way that he forgives us. And this is why there's a lot of God's people who are living in a state of despair and discouragement and defeat. Because we eagerly want God to forgive us of our sin, while at the same time we're withholding forgiveness toward those who have sinned against us. Think about this on the cross. What did Jesus pray? He said, Father, forgive them. Guess what? Right now in this moment, Jesus is still praying. And guess what he's praying? Same thing. 
Paul writes in Romans 8, 34, who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us, praying for us, pleading for us, interceding for us. That means to speak to another on somebody's behalf. Jesus is speaking to his heavenly father on my behalf, on your behalf as God's people. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. He is forgiving us lavishly. And he says, this is how I want you to forgive other people also. But what about forgetting it? What what do we do when we forgive somebody, but the pain's still there, the hurt's still there, the emotion, it's all still there. What do you do with all that? Let me give you three words that maybe will help. Release, remember, and repeat. When we forgive somebody, what we're doing is we are releasing that person. That's literally what the word forgiveness in the Bible has the idea of, to let go of or to release somebody. It has the idea of canceling their debt. I'm letting this go. I'm releasing this. You're forgiven. I'm not going to hold this against you. I'm not going to stick this in my back pocket and pull it out and bludgeon you with it somewhere down the road. I'm not looking to get even. I'm not looking to settle the score. I'm releasing them from whatever it is that they may have done. But can you forget? I can't. Here's my problem. I can't remember the things I want to, and I can't forget the things I do want to. So what do you do when you forgive, you release, and then you remember it all again? Well, that's the third word then, repeat. I got to do that again. I repeat forgiveness. I repeat that decision within myself that I'm not holding that. I'm letting that go. I'm canceling that debt. I'm releasing that person from that. And Jesus is still praying that prayer, Father, forgive them, right? So let me ask you, which is more like Jesus? When his people forgive and forget, or when his people forgive and keep on forgiving? Did that just help some of you just now? Because that really helped me when I studied that this week. Because I think the world's kind of put this thing on me of forget it, forget it, forget it. And Jesus is saying, oh, you follow me, you're going to forgive and you're going to keep on forgiving and just keep on forgiving and keep on forgiving. See, and when you repeat the intentional action of forgiving someone, you're living like Jesus. And and not only that, but the fact that you're continuing to repeat forgiveness means you're not hanging on to bitterness. You're not hanging on to unforgiveness and you're walking in victory. When you put forgiveness on repeat, you begin to experience more joy and more peace in your life, more freedom from the past. And as you continue to bring that hurt and that pain and that memory to God's throne of grace, the grip that it has had on you begins to loosen and you begin to walk in more and more freedom. See, a lot of times we've talked about forgiveness being a process. I don't think that's necessarily the most accurate way to say it. I think for the child of God, forgiveness is not a process. It's the posture of our life. 
And really, it's just the posture that we ought to stay in and remain in. And why should we not remain in a posture of forgiveness? Because Jesus himself is in a posture of forgiveness toward us until he comes. So I believe in the story of Joseph that Joseph has been now for quite some time forgiving his brothers. Over 20 years, releasing, remembering, and repeat it. Release them, remember it, it comes back, but repeat it. 20 years, he's been in this posture of forgiveness. So where does he go from there? And where do we go from there? What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to act like nothing has, has happened? Before we answer that, I, I think it'd be important this morning for me to make a distinction between three words. We're going to put them here on the spectrum, right? Forgive, forgive, reconcile, restore. You with me? Forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration. Those are unique from each other. They're distinguished from each other. They're different. Forgiveness is a solo act. When Jonathan acts like a punk toward me and he doesn't care, he doesn't say he's sorry. He just goes on about his business. You know what? I can still forgive him. I don't have to wait on him to apologize. I don't have to wait on him to make restitution. I don't have to wait on anything because what I needed was Jesus to die for me, to give his life for me, to put his Holy Spirit in me. That's all I need for life and godliness so I can stand here being sinned against and still forgive. It's a solo act. It's a decision of the heart for myself. I'm letting it go. I'm going to move forward in freedom. But way over here is restoration. Restoration means I'm going to restore Jonathan to the way that relationship was before anything happened. We're going to completely reset right back to where we were, to where the relationship was or where the relationship is intended to be. It's beautiful, by the way, when restoration happens. It's beautiful, isn't it, when a friendship is restored. It's beautiful when a marriage is restored. It's beautiful when a family is restored. But that does not always happen. In fact, I would say to you this morning, that can't always happen. In fact, sometimes To pursue restoration would be the foolish thing to do. And not only would pursuing restoration be the foolish thing to do, but sometimes pursuing restoration may even be the most immoral thing that you could do. For example, and God forbid that a volunteer at Grace Life or a staff member at Grace Life would ever abuse a child here under our care. Let me be clear, if that happens, we will immediately 
contact the authorities. Cooperate fully with the authorities and pray for the fullest measure of justice to be poured out on that offender. Should we forgive that person? Yes, but never, ever, under any circumstances, this side of heaven, are we going to restore that person back to a place where they are caring for the vulnerable among us? And should they leave this place and go to another place where they may position themselves to cause hurt and harm to somebody else? We will draw attention to that so that that does not happen. But here's a different question. We can forgive them. Yes, we must. We're not going to walk in this defeat. We're not going to walk in this bitterness. This unfor- We're not going to hang on to that. Jesus died to set us free. Why would we enslave ourselves again to unforgiveness? We're going to forgive them. We must. We must. I'm not saying it's easy. Some of you right now, I wish you had not come to church today because the last thing you want to hear today is that you must forgive somebody. Unforgiveness is the poison that you're making yourself drink. It will destroy you, not the person that has sinned against you. So for that person, yes, we will forgive. Will we restore? Never. That relationship, where it was, what it was, that's gone. That ship has sailed. But what about reconciliation? Is that possible? Is that possible? Reconciliation can often lead to restoration, but it doesn't always. Sometimes it's not going to be possible. And when restoration is not possible, reconciliation is enough. Here's what I believe. I believe every follower of Jesus Not only must we forgive, we must desire and pray for and pursue as much as possible reconciliation. And here's why I say that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says, And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. God has given the church, followers of Jesus, the message of and the ministry of reconciliation. To know that there is a chasm between sinners and a holy God, but Jesus has come. He died to bridge that gap. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you can be reconciled to God. But here's the thing, Christ followers. If we're not interested in horizontal reconciliation among people, then our vertical message of reconciliation between God and man does not fall on listening ears. Now you say, Pastor, help me understand. I'm a little confused. I get forgiveness, but reconciliation and restoration. What's the difference there? Here's a definition for reconciliation. Ready? Here you go. Reconciliation is to renegotiate or reestablish a proper relationship after it's been 
disrupted, or broken. In other words, here's what reconciliation is. Reconciliation is coming to terms with a new way to move forward in this relationship. It's not the same. It's not the old way. It's a new way. Reconciliation is renegotiating, reestablishing of this relationship. But here's the thing. Reconciliation. I can forgive. I can forgive Jonathan and, and, and it is independent of what Jonathan is doing. But in terms of reconciliation, I can't be reconciled to Jonathan independent of Jonathan. Reconciliation is going to require the other person's involvement and it's going to depend on their attitude of the offense. It's going to depend on the depth of the offense. It's going to depend on the pattern of that offense. Before a relationship can be reconciled, watch this, there first has to be repentance from the offender. The offender has to turn from this sinful behavior, this hurtful behavior, this harmful behavior, to turn from it, trusting God to transform their heart, to transform their life, to strive to live in a way that they no longer repeat that offense, that they're changed. John the Baptist says this in Luke chapter 3, verse 8. He says, prove by the way you live that you've repented of your sins and turned to God. Prove by the way you live. The Bible calls that the fruit of repentance. Here, what John the Baptist is, is saying is that if there's true repentance, then your life ought to show it. Your words ought to show it. Your attitude ought to show it. Your behavior, your action. Why? Because repentance bears fruit. And by the way, an unrepentant offender is not going to appreciate the fact that you are asking God to give you discernment to know if there's repentance in their life. An unrepentant offender doesn't want to repent. They want to make you think they've repented. They're going to try to microwave that process, and they're going to say stuff to you like, well, I thought you are a Christian. You're supposed to forgive and forget. And we go, okay. Uh, forgive and forget. No! What do you say when they say that? I say this, I do forgive and I'm going to keep on forgiving because Jesus forgives and he's going on in forgiveness, but I can't be reconciled to you until there's repentance in your life. Reconciliation is not yet on the table. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Listen, some of you softies, don't be manipulated by an unrepentant heart. Of course, only God knows the heart. But like John the Baptist said, if the heart has been changed, the fruit's going to be changed. Look at a person's life. Look for that fruit. And a few tears and a few I'm sorry's has been often accepted as substitutes for a transformed heart and a transformed life. Don't fall for that. Choose to forgive them and forgive them and forgive them. But repentance has to happen before there can be reconciliation. But understand this. Repentance doesn't mean perfection. 
Repentance doesn't mean they're never going to do that again. Right? The writer of Hebrews talks about the sin that so easily entangles us. I mean, how many times have you repented of something to the Lord, but you still did it again, right? Well, we want to forgive others the way God has forgiven us. So we're not looking at behavior modification. We're looking at spirit-brought heart transformation. That's what we're praying for and asking God to give us discernment to see. Again, let me say this. If you reconcile, which is no reconciliation, by the way, but if you reconcile with an unrepentant person, that's not being loving. Some of you think you're so loving because you forgive and we're going to hug and it's all good and we're reconciled. You're not being loving. You're not. If they're unrepentant and you're seeking to reconcile with them, you're not being loving. You're not doing what's for their best. You are, in fact, aiding and abetting them and entrenching themselves in a pattern of sinful and hurtful and harmful behavior. It's called enabling. That's not love. And I know this is complicated. And there's a million different situations in this room and a million different variables in those situations. And some of you now have more questions. You have answers and you're, well, what about, and I don't know, and this and that. So here's what I'm saying. You need to seek some godly counsel to maybe figure out the details of your particular situation. If you're not sure where to find that godly counsel, contact some of our pastors and we'll find you some godly counsel. Okay. We want to help you with that. But back to Joseph, he has forgiven his brothers, right? Right. Clearly they're still alive. (laughs) They're at his table, but he wants more than just forgiveness. He wants to be reconciled to his brothers, but not if they're the same hateful, selfish, conniving, lying, manipulative bunch of thugs that they were 20 years ago. You cannot be reconciled to somebody that is living a harmful, destructive, reckless, godless, evil life. How can those two walk together? They do not agree. Well, how can Joseph know if there's been repentance in their lives? Because he's not been with them for the last 20 years. He's not been able to observe that on a consistent kind of basis. So Joseph, to discern that, he has to do something that's pretty unique to his situation. He puts his brothers through a series of tests to see how they respond, how they react. And that's what we've been seeing Joseph do the last couple of chapters. He's testing them. And there's one last test today in chapter 44. It's the loyalty test. It's the loyalty test. Repentance may be seen in how we answer this question. Will I be loyal to me at the expense of my brothers? Or will I be loyal to my brothers at my expense? It's the loyalty test. So with forgiveness on repeat, Joseph sets out to try to discern are his brothers repentant so they might could be reconciled? Is restoration possible? No, that ship has sailed. He'll never be 17 again. 
They're never going to live under Jacob's roof again. That form of that relationship is gone. But a new negotiation, a new reestablishment, a new way forward is possible if his brothers have repented. Have they? Let's look at the text. Chapter 44, verse 1. We're going to just read it straight through. Your challenge is not to fall asleep. Hang on. When his brothers were ready to leave, they've been at his table. They don't know him. He knows them. He's been feeding them, right? Now they're ready to leave. And Joseph gave these instructions to his palace manager. Fill each of their sacks with as much grain as they can carry and put each man's money back into his sack. Then put my personal silver cup at the top of the youngest brother's sack, along with the money for his grain. So the manager did as Joseph instructed him. The brothers were up at dawn and were sent on their journey with their loaded donkeys. But when they had gone only a short distance and were barely out of the city, Joseph said to his palace manager, chase after them and stop them. When you catch up with them, ask them, why have you repaid my kindness with such evil? Why have you stolen my master's silver cup, which he uses to predict the future? What a wicked thing you've done. When the palace manager caught up with the men, he spoke to them as he had been instructed. What are you talking about? The brothers responded. We are your servants and would never do such a thing. Didn't we return the money we found in our sacks? We brought it back all the way from the land of Canaan. Why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If you find his cup with any one of us, let that man die. And all the rest of us, my Lord, will be your slaves. That's fair, the man replied, but only the one who stole the cup will be my slave. The rest of you may go free. They all quickly took their sacks from the backs of their donkeys and opened them. The palace manager searched the brother's sacks from the oldest to the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. When the brothers saw this, they tore their clothing in despair. Then they loaded their donkeys again and returned to the city. Did you see that? They didn't say, Benjamin, you're going to get it. We gone. They didn't go home. They turned back. They went with their brother back to Egypt. Verse 14, Joseph was still in his palace when Judah and his brothers arrived and they fell to the ground before him. What have you done? Joseph demanded. Don't you know that a man like me can predict the future? Judah answered, oh, my Lord, what can we say to you? How can we explain this? How can we prove our innocence? God is punishing us for our sins. Oh, Judah just admitted something happened 20 years ago. We did something horrible. And now we're paying for it. We're paying for it. My Lord, we've all returned to be your slaves. All of us, all of us, not just our brother who had your cup in his sack. No, Joseph said, I would never do such a thing. Only the man who stole the cup will be my slave. The rest of you may go back to your father in peace. There's the test, right? Loyalty test. Then Judah stepped forward. Huh? He didn't step back. Judah stepped forward and said, please, my Lord, let your servant say just one word to you. Please do not be angry with me. And even though you're as powerful as Pharaoh himself, my Lord, previously you asked us, your servants, do you have a father or a brother? And we responded, yes, my Lord, we have a father who's an old man and his youngest son is a child of his old age. His full brother's dead and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him very much. And you said to us, bring him here so I can see him with my own eyes. But we said to you, my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father for his father would die. But you told us, unless your youngest brother comes with you, 
you will never see my face again. So he returned to your servant, our father, and told him what you had said. Later, when he said, go back again and buy us more food, we replied, we can't go unless you let our youngest brother go with us. We'll never get to see the man's face unless our youngest brother's with us. Then my father said to us, as you know, my wife had two sons and one of them went away and never returned. Doubtless he was torn to pieces by some wild animal. I've never seen him since. Now, if you take his brother away from me and any harm comes to him, you will send this grieving white haired man to his grave. And now my Lord, this is Judah talking to, to Joseph. He doesn't know it's Joseph. I can't go back to my father without the boy. Our father's life is bound up in the boy's life. If he sees that the boy is not with us, our father will die. We, your servants, will indeed be responsible for sending that grieving white-haired man to his grave. My Lord, I guaranteed to my father that I would take care of the boy. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I'll bear the blame forever. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish this would cause my father. This is different. Judah and his brothers have gone from selling a brother into slavery to offering to sell themselves into slavery to save their brother. Did Judah and his brothers pass the loyalty test? I think so. Is there fruit of repentance in Judah and his brothers' lives? I think so. Can reconciliation really happen between them and Joseph after all that they've done? Joseph seems to think so. Chapter 45, Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Then he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him, and word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all Egypt. In the hurt and in the pain, Joseph recognizes God was still in control. His plan is unstoppable. It's not over because of what somebody's done to me. And it's not over because of what somebody's done to you. As long as God is on his throne and he forever will be, it is not over for you. Verse 9, now hurry back to my father. And tell him, this is what your son Joseph says, God has made me master over all the land of Egypt. So come down to me, dad. Hurry, go tell my dad. 
immediately. Go get my dad. You can live in the region of Goshen where you can be near me with all your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and everything you own. I will take care of you there for there's still five years of famine ahead of us. Otherwise you, your household and all your animals will starve. And then Joseph added, look, you can see for yourselves and so can my brother Benjamin that I really am Joseph. I don't know what that means. I kind of think he and Benjamin had like the little secret handshake from when they were kids, right? And they like did the secret handshake or something. Verse 13, go tell my father of my honored position here in Egypt. Describe for him everything you've seen and then bring my father here quickly. What is on his mind, dad? Is on his mind. Weeping with joy, he embraced Benjamin and Benjamin did the same. Then Joseph kissed each of his brothers and wept over them. And after that, they began talking freely with them. On this Father's Day, it is so interesting to me, the timing of how God's led us through his word in this story. That on this Father's Day, we come to this moment in Joseph's life where clearly what is on his mind is, hey, hurry, go get my dad. Quickly, go get my dad. Immediately, go get my dad. He's the vice president of Egypt. But all he is is somebody's kid. Somebody's son. He just wants to see his dad. He wants his dad to see him. He wants his dad to be proud of him. Dads, that's all our boys want. They want us to see them. And they want us to be proud of them. That's all our children want from us, Dad. And children, all Joseph could think about, I want to honor my dad. I want to please my dad. Children, the Bible says, honor your mother and your father. In the Lord, for this is right. Are you doing that? For some of you here today, you need today to set your playlist on forgiveness and put it on repeat. Just keep forgiving. For some of you today, you need to repent. You've been a selfish son of a gun your whole life, and it needs to stop. It needs to change. You're ruining every good thing that the Lord is giving to you. And he's calling you today to repent, to turn from that and to trust God to transform your life. And some of you today need to take a step or two toward reconciling a relationship. It won't be the same. but it can go forward. It'll be different. But reconciliation could happen. That doesn't mean restored. It just means new terms, a new reality. So an old relationship can move forward together. 
forgiveness, repentance, reconciliation, restoration, loyalty, honor, love. That's an awful lot on this Father's Day. So God help us. God help us to forgive today. Like Jesus, you forgive us. God help us today to repent, to turn and trust you to change our hearts, to change our lives, to give us a new start. God, help us today. Give us wisdom. To know how to move toward reconciliation. And to know whether or not there's any hope of restoration. And Jesus, we thank you today for your forgiveness to us. Thank you for giving your life on the cross that we could be reconciled to God. And thank you for promising us that one day you are going to restore all the broken things. Everything's going to be made new. There's some earthly relationships with a dad today or somebody that's broken. What does God want to do in that? As I look around this room today, some of you, this is your first Father's Day with your dad in heaven. And I'm telling you, that relationship one day because of Jesus is going to be restored even better than it's ever been. So I want to invite you to stand and we respond to God's word. There's plenty of room down here if you want an altar to put your face on and call out to the Lord. You can do that right where you stand, right there in that row. What I hope you don't do is walk out of here the same way you walked in. Release all you're going to remember. Just repeat it again. Release all over again. Repent. Turn. Trust God. Reconcile. Hope in the final restoration of all things. 